Chapter Fifteen of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Fifteen. These meditations did not enfeeble my resolution or slacken my pace. In proportion as I drew near the city, the tokens of its calamitous condition became more apparent. Every farmhouse was filled with supernumerary tenants, fugitives from home. And haunting the skirts of the road, eager to detain every passenger with inquiries after news. The passengers were numerous, for the tide of emigration was by no means exhausted. Some were on foot, bearing in their countenances the tokens of their recent terror, and filled with mournful reflections on the forlornness of their new state. Few had secured to themselves an asylum. Some were without means of paying for victuals or lodging for the coming night. Others who were not thus destitute yet knew not whither to apply for entertainment. Every house being already overstocked with inhabitants, or barring its inhospitable doors at their approach, families of weeping mothers and dismayed children, attended with a few pieces of indispensable furniture. Were carried in vehicles of every form. The parent or husband had perished, and the price of some movable or the pittance handed forth by public charity had been expended to purchase the means of retiring from this theatre of disasters, though uncertain and hopeless of accommodation in the neighboring districts. Between these and the fugitives whom curiosity had led to the road, dialogues frequently took place. To which I was suffered to listen. From every mouth, the tale of sorrow was repeated with new aggravations. Pictures of their own distress or of that of their neighbors were exhibited in all the hues which imagination can annex to pestilence and poverty. My preconceptions of the evil now appeared to have fallen short of the truth. The dangers into which I was rushing seemed more numerous and imminent than I had previously imagined. I wavered not in my purpose. A panic crept to my heart, which more vehement exertions were necessary to subdue or control. But I harbored not a momentary doubt that the course which I had taken was prescribed by duty. There was no difficulty or reluctance in proceeding. All for which my efforts were demanded was to walk in this path without tumult or alarm. Various circumstances had hindered me from setting out upon this journey as early as was proper. My frequent pauses to listen to the narratives of travellers contributed likewise to procrastination. The sun had nearly set before I reached the precincts of the city. I pursued the track which I had formerly taken, and entered High Street after nightfall. Instead of equipages and a throng of passengers, the voice of levity and glee which I had formerly observed, and which the mildness of the season would at other times have produced, I found nothing but a dreary solitude. The market place and each side of this magnificent avenue were illuminated as before by lamps, but between the verge of Schoolkill and the heart of the city, I met not more than a dozen figures. And these were ghost-like, wrapped in cloaks from behind which they cast upon me glances of wonder and suspicion, and as I approached, changed their course to avoid touching me. Their clothes were sprinkled with vinegar, 
and their nostrils defended from contagion by some powerful perfume. I cast a look upon the houses which I recollected to have formerly been at this hour brilliant with lights, resounding with lively voices, and thronged with busy faces. Now they were closed, above and below, dark, without tokens of being inhabited. From the upper windows of some a gleam sometimes fell upon the pavement I was traversing, and showed that their tenants had not fled, but were secluded or disabled. These tokens were new, and awakened all my panics. Death seemed to hover over this scene, and I dreaded that the floating pestilence had already lighted on my frame. I had scarcely overcome these tremors when I approached a house the door of which was opened, and before which stood a vehicle which I presently recognized to be a hearse. The driver was seated on it. I stood still to mark his visage and to observe the course which he proposed to take. Presently a coffin, borne by two men, issued from the house. The driver was a negro, but his companions were white. Their features were marked by ferocious indifference to danger or pity. One of them, as he assisted in thrusting the coffin into the cavity provided for it, said, "'I'll be damned if I think the poor dog was quite dead. It wasn't the fever that ailed him, but the sight of the girl and her mother on the floor. I wonder how they all got into that room. What carried them there?' The other surlily muttered, "'Their legs, to be sure.' "'But what should they hug together in one room for?' "'To save us the trouble, to be sure.' "'And I thank them with all my heart, "'but damn it, it wasn't right to put him in his coffin "'before the breath was fairly gone. "'I thought the last look he gave me told me to stay a few minutes. "'Pshaw! He could not live. "'The sooner the dead, the better for him as well as for us. "'Did you mark how he eyed us when we carried away his wife and daughter?' I never cried in my life since I was knee-high, but curse me if I ever felt in better tune for the business than just then. Hey! continued he, looking up, and observing me standing a few paces distant and listening to their discourse. What's wanted? Anybody dead? I stayed not to answer or parley, but hurried forward. My joints trembled and cold drops stood on my forehead. I was ashamed of my own infirmity, and by vigorous efforts of my reason regained some degree of composure. The evening had now advanced, and it behooved me to procure accommodation at some of the inns. These were easily distinguished by their signs, but many were without inhabitants. At length I lighted upon one, the hall of which was open and the windows lifted. After knocking for some time, a young girl appeared with many marks of distress. In answer to my question, she answered that both her parents were sick, and that they could receive no one. I inquired in vain for any other tavern at which strangers might be accommodated. She knew of none such, and left me on someone's calling to her from above, in the midst of my embarrassment. After a moment's pause I returned, discomfited and perplexed, to the street. I proceeded, in a considerable degree, at random— at length I reached a spacious building on Fourth Street, which the signpost showed me to be an inn. I knocked loudly and often at the door. At length a female opened the window of the second story, and in a tone of peevishness demanded what I wanted. I told her that I wanted lodging. 
"'Go hunt for it somewhere else,' said she. "'You'll find none here.' I began to expostulate, but she shut the window with quickness and left me to my own reflections. I began now to feel some regret at the journey I had taken. Never, in the depths of caverns or forests, was I equally conscious of loneliness. I was surrounded by the habitations of men, but I was destitute of associate or friend. I had money, but a horse shelter or a morsel of food could not be purchased. I came for the purpose of relieving others, but stood in the utmost need myself. Even in health my condition was helpless and forlorn, but what would become of me should this fatal malady be contracted? To hope that an asylum would be afforded to a sick man which was denied to one in health was unreasonable. The first impulse which flowed from these reflections was to hasten back to Malverton, which, with sufficient diligence, I might hope to regain before the morning light. I could not, methought, return upon my steps with too much speed. I was prompted to run as if the pest was rushing upon me and could be eluded only by the most precipitate flight. This impulse was quickly counteracted by new ideas. I thought with indignation and shame on the imbecility of my proceeding. I called up the images of Susan Hadwin and of Wallace. I reviewed the motives which had led me to the undertaking of this journey. Time had, by no means, diminished their force. I had, indeed, nearly arrived at the accomplishment of what I had intended. A few steps would carry me to Thetford's habitation. This might be the critical moment when succor was most needed and would be most efficacious. I had previously concluded to defer going thither till the ensuing morning, but why should I allow myself a moment's delay? I might at least gain an external view of the house, and circumstances might arise which would absolve me from the obligation of remaining an hour longer in the city. All for which I came might be performed, the destiny of Wallace be ascertained, and I be once more safe within the precincts of Malverton before the return of day. I immediately directed my steps towards the habitation of Thetford. Carriages bearing the dead were frequently discovered. A few passengers likewise occurred, whose hasty and perturbed steps denoted their participation in the common distress. The house of which I was in quest quickly appeared. Light from an upper window indicated that it was still inhabited. I paused a moment to reflect in what manner it became me to proceed. To ascertain the existence and condition of Wallace was the purpose of my journey. He had inhabited this house, and whether he remained in it was now to be known. I felt repugnance to enter, since my safety might, by entering, be unawares and uselessly endangered. Most of the neighboring houses were apparently deserted. In some there were various tokens of people being within. Might I not inquire at one of these respecting the condition of Thetford's family? Yet why should I disturb them by inquiries so impertinent at this unseasonable hour? To knock at Thetford's door and put my questions to him who should obey the signal was the obvious method. I knocked dubiously and lightly. No one came. I knocked again, and more loudly, I likewise drew the bell. I distinctly heard its distant peals. If any were within, my signal could not fail to be noticed. I paused and listened, but neither voice nor footsteps could be heard. 
The light, though obscured by window-curtains which seemed to be drawn close, was still perceptible. I ruminated on the causes that might hinder my summons from being obeyed. I figured to myself nothing but the helplessness of disease or the insensibility of death. These images only urged me to persist in endeavoring to obtain admission. Without weighing the consequences of my act, I involuntarily lifted the latch. The door yielded to my hand, and I put my feet within the passage. Once more I paused. The passage was of considerable extent, and at the end of it I perceived light as from a lamp or candle. This impelled me to go forward till I reached the foot of a staircase. A candle stood upon the lowest step. This was a new proof that the house was not deserted. I struck my heel against the floor with some violence, but this, like my former signals, was unnoticed. Having proceeded thus far, it would have been absurd to retire with my purpose unaffected. Taking the candle in my hand, I opened a door that was near. It led into a spacious parlor furnished with profusion and splendor. I walked to and fro, gazing at the objects which presented themselves, and, involved in perplexity, I knocked with my heel louder than ever, but no less ineffectually. Notwithstanding the lights which I had seen, it was possible that the house was uninhabited. This I was resolved to ascertain, by proceeding to the chamber which I had observed from without to be illuminated. This chamber, as far as the comparison of circumstances would permit me to decide, I believed to be the same in which I had passed the first night of my late abode in the city. Now was I, a second time, in almost equal ignorance of my situation, and of the consequences which impended, exploring my way to the same recess. I mounted the stair. As I approached the door of which I was in search, a vapor, infectious and deadly, assailed my senses. It resembled nothing of which I had ever before been sensible. Many odors had been met with, even since my arrival in the city, less supportable than this. I seemed not so much to smell as to taste the element that now encompassed me. I felt as if I had inhaled a poisonous and subtle fluid, whose power instantly bereft my stomach of all vigor. Some fatal influence appeared to seize upon my vitals, and the work of corrosion and decomposition to be busily begun. For a moment I doubted whether imagination had not some share in producing my sensation, but I had not been previously panic-struck, and even now I attended to my own sensations without mental discomposure. That I had imbibed this disease was not to be questioned. So far the chances in my favor were annihilated. The lot of sickness was drawn. Whether my case would be lenient or malignant, whether I should recover or perish, was to be left to the decision of the future. This incident, instead of appalling me, tended rather to invigorate my courage. The danger which I feared had come. I might enter with indifference on this theatre of pestilence. I might execute without faltering the duties that my circumstances might create. My state was no longer hazardous and my destiny would be totally uninfluenced by my future conduct. The pang with which I was first seized, and the momentary inclination to vomit which it produced, presently subsided. My wholesome feelings, indeed, did not revisit me, 
but strength to proceed was restored to me. The effluvia became more sensible as I approached the door of the chamber. The door was ajar, and the light within was perceived. My belief that those within were dead was presently confuted by sound, which I first supposed to be that of steps moving quickly and timorously across the floor. This ceased, and was succeeded by sounds of different but inexplicable import. Having entered the apartment, I saw a candle on the hearth. A table was covered with vials and other apparatus of a sick chamber. A bed stood on one side, the curtain of which was dropped at the foot, so as to conceal any one within. I fixed my eyes upon this object. There were sufficient tokens that someone lay upon the bed. Breath, drawn at long intervals, mutterings scarcely audible, and a tremulous motion in the bedstead were fearful and intelligible indications. If my heart faltered, it must not be supposed that my trepidations arose from any selfish considerations. Wallace only, the object of my search, was present to my fancy. Pervaded with remembrance of the Hadwins, of the agonies which they had already endured, of the despair which would overwhelm the unhappy Susan when the death of her lover should be ascertained, observant of the lonely condition of this house whence I could only infer that the sick had been denied suitable attendance, and reminded by the symptoms that appeared that this being was struggling with the agonies of death, a sickness of the heart more insupportable than that which I had just experienced, stole upon me. My fancy readily depicted the progress and completion of this tragedy. Wallace was the first of the family on whom the pestilence had seized. Thetford had fled from his habitation. Perhaps as a father and husband, to shun the danger attending his stay was the injunction of his duty. It was questionless the conduct which selfish regards would dictate. Wallace was left to perish alone, or, perhaps, which indeed was a supposition somewhat justified by appearances, he had been left to the tendance of mercenary wretches, by whom, at this desperate moment, he had been abandoned. I was not mindless of the possibility that these forebodings, specious as they were, might be false. The dying person might be some other than Wallace. The whispers of my hope were indeed faint, but they at least prompted me to snatch a look at the expiring man." For this purpose I advanced and thrust my head within the curtain. End of chapter 15